Well, good morning, everyone, again. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. You'll see, uh, as you look up on the, the PowerPoint, it says, Intentional Disciples Making Disciples, and then it says, Part 1. Uh, I had planned on preaching uh, this entire sermon in one sitting, Genesis and Acts, and contrasting the two, but it just got so long. And I'm going to a baseball game at 1 o'clock, so I decided to half it and uh, not hold you until 1 o'clock, but instead to do part today and part next week. Uh, we have been looking at uh, this truth that if we really want to move forward in what God has for us into the future, we need to understand the basics of what God has designed for us. That sometimes as we move forward into the future, we try to do things in new ways, and new ways aren't bad, but at the same time, new ways, if they're not God's ways, are going nowhere. I was going to say no way, but it's, it's not God's plan for us. We need to understand what God's plan for us is, his purpose, his design. In the book of Matthew, right before Jesus leaves, he gives what is known as the Great Commission, where he says to his followers, his disciples, that they are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And he promises that he's going to be with them, and this is to take place even until the very end of the age. So his disciples make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples on down through the ages, and we're here over 2,000 years later, still making disciples, until the end of the age, which is when Jesus Christ returns. And in that process, he promises to be with us. He promises to not forsake us. He promises not to leave us. So just as he said to his disciples, go make disciples, I'll be with you, so also are we to be making disciples with the empowering presence of Christ by the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. I want to talk about, again, what does it mean to, in past weeks, a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was I preached last, I talked about us being intentional disciples. That for many people, we start to just kind of float through life. We lose what does it mean to be intentional. Uh, we just kind of let life happen. And uh, I, I would like to say to you that letting life happen is when life runs over you, uh, when life dictates the course of your existence. Instead, without us directing the course of our life, I believe God is calling us to be intentional disciples. And by that, I mean we lean into the grace of God. We don't, we don't try to make stuff happen, but instead... We purposefully place ourselves in a position where the grace of God can work through us to accomplish his purposes. So, for instance, why do I read my Bible? Why do I pray? Why do I go to worship service? Well, I believe these disciplines are, are placing me in a position where God can move in my life and accomplish what he wants. The disciplines in and of themselves, they don't make things happen. It's God's power at work with me, in me that's making things happen, right? So some of us say, well, i got to pray 
in order that I'm going to get what I want. No, you've got to pray in order to position yourself to hear from God about what He desires so that you, in His might and power, can move forward. So we talked about that in past weeks, being an intentional disciple. And today, I want to talk about what does it mean to intentionally make disciples? How are we to be in the process of helping others come to know Christ as the one who rules their life and forgives their sins? It's really our purpose, to shine to the world the glory of God. Hopefully, uh, you've been reading in your Bible over the past week, the book of Job. How many are loving the book of Job? You're like in chapter 19. So you're like, I like it. I, what's wrong with you people? Uh, no. Uh, I love the beginning and ending of the book of Job. Uh, the, the conversations between the three bad friends who keep giving him bad advice in his discussion. I, I honestly, I, I'm sure like you do, I get bogged down in that just a little bit. But this past week, we read in Job 12 this passage where Job is responding to his friends and he says this, to God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. What he tears down cannot be rebuilt. The man he imprisons cannot be released. He, if he holds back the waters, there is drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. To him belong strength and victory Both deceived and deceiver are his. He reveals the deep things of darkness and brings deep shadows into the light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. He deprives the leaders of the earth of their reason. Amen. He sends them wandering to a trackless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like drunkards. To me, this speaks of the building of God. He is the one who is in control. If we believe in the sovereignty of God, then we believe, as Job does, that God is the one who brings wisdom and power. God is the one who releases. God is the one who builds. God is the one who tears down. God is the one who does everything because everything is in his control. Job was, according to most scholars, the very first book of the Bible ever written. I mean, it is the oldest. It was written before Genesis or any of the the Pentateuch. It was written probably, as people guess, somewhere between 2000 and 2500 B.C., around the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, probably precedes the patriarchs even. So Job's understanding of God is miraculous considering he didn't have the rest of the Bible to look at. I mean, really, think about how incredible the language of this book is and how old and ancient and how God revealed himself to this person in the midst of incredible adversity. In it, he is saying, we are to rely on God. God is the one who builds up. God, we'll get to the end of the book of Job. I'll mention it next week because it's just such a majestic ending. But in the middle of Job's struggles, he sees that God is the one who builds. And and really, this is the point I want to bring to us today. There is the world's way of building, 
and then there's God's way of building. There's the world's way of doing, and then there's God's way. The world's way will lead to, as we're going to see this morning, difficulties, challenges, false religions, idolatry. It'll lead us to places that are non-life-giving. They're confusing. God's way of building brings life. He, he brings true disciples. So today, we're going to look at the way to not build. And then you get to come back next week, and we're going to look at the way to build according to God's plan. Around the same time that Job was being written, uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza was being built. 2500 B.C., it's 481 feet high. Uh, it, remained, it remained the tallest structure in the world for 3,800 years. 3,800 years, it remained the tallest. The Pyramid of Giza is like the other pyramids, as you may remember from uh, your ancient classes. Uh, it is a tomb. It is a fancy tomb for a, a pharaoh who was trying to get from this world into the next world. And they built these incredible structures in order to help the pharaoh travel into uh, the afterlife. There is a greatness to them. If you, I mean, think about this. It, it's always remarkable to think. When Moses was in Egypt, the pyramid was there. When the slaves were in Egypt, the pyramid, when Joseph went down to Egypt, the pyramid was already there. 3,800 years it stood as the tallest structure. However, there is in Genesis 11 a story about another tall structure that was being built, and we know it as the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11:4, mankind says to himself or themselves, let's build a great city with a tower that reaches to the skies, a monument to our greatness. Just like the pyramid was built as a greatness, as a sign of greatness to the Pharaoh, the Tower of Babel was built as a tower of greatness to all of mankind. I want to contrast that kind of building with the building that God, through Jesus, talks about when he says to Peter, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, gates of hell, will not overcome it. One of my contentions over the years has been that you can build a big group of people. You can, you can build a group. There are a lot of techniques and ways that you can build a group. You can call it a church. You can call it whatever you want. But it's techniques that are well known in how to gather people, keep them together, get them to contribute, and build. And, and I want to say there's... They get, those techniques can be redeemed. Those techniques can be used by God, but ultimately, who is it that builds the church? It's Jesus. And we want to build a Jesus church. We want to be the kind of people that put ourselves in a position where Christ can build his church because one will stand and one will fall. One will make it through the tough times and one won't. So here's what I want to say to us this morning. 
I want to talk about tower building and the tragedy of what it is to be a tower builder. Uh, because we all in this age get caught up in tower building if we're not careful. We try to build towers in our heart. We try to build towers in our family. We want to build towers in our business or our church. And so today I want to talk about what does it look like to be a tower builder. And, and again, it's going to take me longer to, to get at the positive side is, okay, how do we not be tower builders? And we're going to look at that next week. So from Genesis 11... Verses 1 through 9, let me read you the story of the Tower of Babel. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then, then everybody okay? If as one people, I, I have even no idea what that was. <laughs> if as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. This is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, there's one level where you first read this story and you start to think, this sounds like some mythological story that explains why there are a ton of languages on the earth. It's kind of like, how did the fire get down and the Roman gods did this and that and it, it, it sounds equivalent to that in some ways, but it is not at all. It has so much more meaning to it than simply this, how did we get a lot of languages on the earth? I believe that this is a story about the plans and the purposes of God versus the plans and purposes of man. And how one leads to death and destruction and confusion, and one leads to unity in life. So let me give you a little background very quickly. Noah, remember the flood? Uh, you, know, you know the story of Noah. And after Noah, he had, a, he had three sons. One of his sons uh, was named Ham. Ham had a son who was named Cush. And Cush had one of our favorite biblical names of all time as a son, Nimrod. So uh, Nimrod, uh, in Genesis 8, uh, 10, verses 8 through 12, this is a chapter before, said, Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew up to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. I love the way the Bible <laughs> repeats itself sometimes. But by the way, I've never heard Nimrod called a mighty hunter before the Lord. It usually has totally different meanings in our day and age. It says, but he builds. Nimrod becomes a builder. And it says, the first sinners of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Canaan in Shinar. 
So there's this plain known as Shinar. And it, by the way, this is the first biblical mention of the word kingdom in the Bible. And it is not God's kingdom. It is man building a kingdom. So you have this guy who's a mighty warrior, a descendant, the great-grandson of Noah. Man is already turned away from the ways of God within the first, what, 100 to 150 years after the flood? Already they've forgotten. Already. So he, as a mighty hunter, is going to make a name for himself. And most biblical scholars believe he's the one who gathers the people together and builds, begins to build the tower on the plain of Shinar that's going to make a name not only for himself but for all of mankind. As you'll see, God is going to come down and he's going to confuse man with language and that's where the term Babel comes from. Uh, Babel, many languages. And it's also the, where the term Babylon comes from. Um, the many languages, the confusion of man. And from now till the end of the Bible, Babylon is going to be a symbol of man going his own way. Of man being turned loose, as it says in Romans. You know, God gives man over to his own desires. It's the ultimate, I think, of man accomplishing versus God accomplishing. Sin really results when we just say, the heck with God, we're going to do what we want. We're going to live like we want. We're going to be like we want because we believe in the autonomy of man and the greatness of man, and we believe that this is what we're supposed to be. This desire for control seizes all of us. We want to control our lives. And, and it is the sin of Babylon to say, I want to build my way. I want to have control. And even over in the book of Revelation, it even says this, the title was written on her forehead, Mystery Babylon the Great. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Well, that's not a name I want over my bedpost, right? Here, put it, stick this one up. It is, the, it is the ultimate end of the Tower of Babel that man becomes trapped in this continuing battle to prostitute ourselves in order to achieve our own purposes rather than God's own purposes. To build a city, to build a name or a reputation, to build a false unity. To plan and have new religion. God sees the tower and what's being accomplished. And he, calls the building, he causes the building project to fall apart. Why? Because he's afraid that man will actually reach to the heavens. I believe that, that symbol reach to the heavens is not a literal, like it's going to reach to the throne room of God. But rather, it's the creation of a new religion that studies the heavens that says we are in control of our own existence. We have all at some point attempted to become tower builders. We seem intent on building our own way. And so I want to talk, I want to give you four problems with being a tower builder. 
Um, and then uh, I'll flip it at the end just to give you a positive spin on what God wants. And then we'll look toward next week in the way God builds. Because I believe there is a contrasting story in the Bible that talks about if God confuses with one language, how does he build unity in language, which we'll see in Acts 2 next week. But today, let's talk about the confusion that God causes and why. First point is this, tower building misses God's purposes. Tower building misses God's purposes. What is our purpose as humanity? Our purpose really is to know God and to make him known. To know God and to make him known. We love God. We love people. We've talked about these purposes of God. It's, it's no secret. This is what Jesus says is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love man. Love people. Know God. Make him known. Tower building opposes this purpose because what is tower building? It's to make me known. It's to make mankind known. It's to say, look what we can do. If God would have allowed man to continue at the Tower of Babel, he would have been condemning man to become less than what he created man to be. Why did God kick Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden? He was mad at them. He didn't want them to have good fruit anymore. He didn't trust them. I believe it was for their protection. If they had eaten from the knowledge of good and evil, if they would eaten from the tree of life, they would have been forever condemned in that state. So out of his love for man, he drives man out of the garden so that they can seek after, find their purpose again in him. Why does God do this at the tower? But not because he's worried about their little tower. No, he's worried about man forever being locked in a lostness of purpose. I mean, can't contrast these two passages. Uh, in verse 4, man says, let's build a great city with a tower that reaches to the skies, a monument to our greatness. Then in verse 7, God says, come, let us go down. By the way, I love that. It's a Trinitarian statement. It's not like the royal we where the queen says we. This is God saying, let us go down. I mean, to me, there's a perspective here. Man is trying to come up. God is coming down to us. You know, it's amazing to me when you're in a plane and you're flying, how your perspective changes about everything that you see. You know, when you're standing, let's say you're flying into New York. Let's say you're standing on the street looking up at those skyscrapers. You're like, wow, this is really, these are unbelievable. But when you're in a plane looking down, you're like, wow, those look really smaller than I thought. It all has to do with perspective. I, I believe God is calling us upward to understand that he's got a higher purpose for our life. That if we ca get caught in the view from below, looking at the perspective and circumstances around us, that we can easily miss God's perspective and purpose. There's this whole story uh, that's written about these two guys who um, got a little inebriated, left a bar, and ended up on some railroad tracks. 
except they thought they were stairs. And one of them said to the other, wow, is, are these stairs ever going to end? And the other one said, it's not really the length, it's the height of these handrails. I know, it's a bad joke. It's about perspective. We lose perspective. For those of you who are confused, the handrails are the rails in the... Oh, you got it now, it's funnier. No, still not funny, is it? If you're not careful, you allow yourself to get involved with tower building that is a lot lower than what God expects and what God has planned. Some of the things that appear the most innocent in your life can become the most dangerous if they become a purpose in and of themselves. Why? Because they'll distract you from the purposes of God. I, I, as I told you earlier, I'm trying to reorganize some things in my life in order to make my life more intentional. And what I've discovered is my time is being robbed by innocent things that somehow have become consumers of my life. In my, in my unintentionality of living, at times I find that I've wasted a lot of time doing things that are honestly in the long run meaningless. And they appear to be innocent. I could go on about social media. Uh, I've stayed off social media pretty much since January 1st. And you know what? Thanks. You don't have to applaud for me. It's not, it's not something to be proud of. But what I've discovered is how much of my time was being robbed looking at what you had for dinner last night. You know, really, who gives a flip about your tacos from last night? Now, I love your kids, and I love their accomplishments, and I'm trying to stay up with them. And <laughs> but I don't care about all of it. i got to be honest. But I was still spending all this time reading about it. I mean, it's really not that big a deal, but it is a big deal if suddenly I've found that I've, I'm wasting my life. We need, to, we need to let ourselves not be robbed. Tower building, when we give our time to things that are not in God's purposes, we're tower building. All right, second point is this. Aren't you glad you came today? Second point, tower building is contagious. Tower building is contagious. It says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in China and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. The whole endeavor seems so innocent, but pretty soon everybody's on board. There's something, you see, if, if I want to build a name for me, and I find another person who wants to build a name for themselves, and we find another person... It's this sin that indwells us that's so contagious because we all want to be like God. That's what the enemy tempted Adam and Eve with, right? He said to him, hey, eat from this tree. God said, don't do it because if you do, you'll be like him. And ever since, we've been trying to be like him. And all of us want to be like him, so it's contagious to get in this tower building process. Man's always drawn, it seems like, to the highest 
are the fastest or the best, the largest, the richest, the powerfulest. We love those est things. If we can be the best. Someone, I was talking to J.R. out in the Poirier who was asking me if I ran the Mercedes last week, which I did. I, I ran Mercedes half, and he, he was talking about the guy who won it. I said, dude, I never saw the guy who won it because I am not in the est category. I'm aiming for the old best uh, runner, but that's about all I got left to achieve uh, if I make it that long. But we love those large. Now think about this. The Great Pyramid of Giza, how long did I say it was the tallest building for? 3,800 years or so. I mean, we're flipping the tallest buildings we're kicking them out now like crazy. And I mean, they keep getting taller and taller. Um, we've got the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, which is now 2,700 feet high. That's tall. Uh, the tallest building in North America is now the Freedom Tower, which is 1,776 feet. I can remember that one high. By 2020, there is a tower in um, Saudi Arabia, going to be called the Kingdom Tower that will be 3,200 feet high. And it won't be long till other buildings go higher. Why? Because we're obsessed in pride with saying we got the tallest. We've got the biggest. Our logic fails when we try to evaluate what is truly of God. How do you know if something is truly of God? Does it attract the most people? Is it the biggest? Is it the best? Is it? I would contend that within this structure that we live in, that kingdom building is contagious. In Genesis chapter 8, Noah builds an ark and can barely drag his own family onto it. By Genesis 11, man's building a tower, and everybody wants to get involved. How do you weigh? I, I, sometimes uh, tower building is contagious. Sometimes building on God's kingdom is not quite as contagious. George Otis Jr. said he's going to write a book, 101 Non-Spiritual Ways to Grow a Big Church. You may laugh, sort of, but it, it's sad but true. Now, I'm not condemning big churches. I'm just saying that is not our goal. Our goal is not to be tower builders, but to make disciples. All right, third point. Tower building is a source of pride. Tower building is a source of pride. Let us make a name for ourselves. There's pride when you get something that's really big and get a tower. Jesus modeled a different attitude when he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your what? Your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
Tower building becomes prideful because it says, I'm in charge. I rule. I do things. It's opposed to the plans of God. Because, by the way, God opposes the proud but gives grace to who? The humble. Richard Foster, in a great book called In Celebration of Discipline, written, I don't know, 30 years ago or more, says this. More than any other single way, the grace of humility is worked into our lives through the discipline of what? Of service, as Jesus was saying. Nothing disciplines this inor the inordinate desires of the flesh like service. And nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. Uh, this is really powerful if you'll think about it. Serving has one level that really puts to death the flesh. But serving without being known in hiddenness? He says the flesh whines against service but screams against hidden service. It strains and pulls for honor and recognition. It will devise subtle, religiously acceptable means to call attention to the service rendered. If we stoutly refuse to give in to this lust of the flesh, we crucify it. Every time we crucify the flesh, we crucify our pride and arrogance. Think about this. Jesus said, hey, look, if you want to be a servant, that's the way to be a kingdom citizen, to serve, not to hold it over. So what do we do in the church? We figure out a way to make service prideful. We even take something good and make a kingdom, I mean, a tower-building thing out of it. Because, oh, Jesus said serve? Brother, let me serve you. And then we talk to someone, oh, yes, I stopped the other day and helped some poor soul on the side of the road. He needed gas. Um, you know, I didn't have to, but I stopped, and I put $15 of gas in their car. Then I took him to dinner. And, I mean, we start to figure, we find a way. Why, why are you telling people that? Because it's feeding you. Look how good I am. Listen, we're all guilty of it. I'm terrible at home. When my, I'm telling I'm pitiful. My wife would come in and say something. I said, hey, you notice that I, I did the dishes? <laughs> I want credit for what I did. You're the same way. We, we're all got this junk in us that needs approval. So we figure out a way to get credit for some. Hey, you know, did you see the bedroom? Cleaned it up. Didn't have to. Made the bed. I wasn't even the last one out of it today. It's kind of the general rule in our house. Last one out makes, makes the bed. And I, in my servant spirit, I made it even though she was the last one out. I mean, we got that junk working in our lives all the time. We need to serve. We need to have, as it says in Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility considers, consider others better than yourselves. When I was in middle school, this was the path. I memorized this passage, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. One of the first passages I memorized. One of the worst passages to memorize. I mean, really, 
I have no hope of doing this. Honestly, I, I'm ba I've battled this thing my whole life, and so have you. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves? How are you going to? This is so opposed to tower building. He goes on, your attitude, it doesn't stop there. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. We should carry the same attitude. If we want to really fight against tower building in our lives, there's only one hope, and that's to be like Jesus. Because every time we try to be like us, we're going to flip back into that tower building mentality. And as I said, James 4, 6 said, one good reason is because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you're a tower builder, God is going to stand against it at some point. He's not going to let it going to continue. He's going to, he is going to figure out a way, because he loves you that much, to not let you continue on that path. All right, final point. Tower building is external unity. External unity. They say to themselves, come, let us build ourselves a, a city with a tower, reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. Unity is a really powerful force. I mean, really, you, you can accomplish a lot through unity. But this tower-building mentality is external unity, not inward unity. Now, I've got just a couple of minutes left. Let, let me just review for you, and some of you may be new to fullness, so let, let me give you this thought again that we've talked about in the past because it, it, it's a contrast in the way God has made us. Paul prays in Philippians 5.23, I pray that your entire spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So one of the models that Paul gives us here is that you are made up of spirit, soul, and body. Spirit, soul, and body. Your spirit is darkened as the spirit of a man because of sin. But when you come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, the Holy Spirit comes in and enlightens that part that human spirit is now filled with the Spirit of God. Your soul, the part you live in most of your life, is made up of your mind, your will, and your emotion. And then there's this carton we have called our flesh. Not flesh in the bad sense, but flesh is in your body. So Paul says, I pray your spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless till the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Every one of us is made up like this, spirit, soul, and body. And when God calls a couple to be married, this is one of the truths I teach premarital counseling, is that when it comes to a one flesh relationship, the area of your life where you can be in total agreement is where? The spiritual. Because if I've got the Holy Spirit indwelling me, 
Kathy has the same exact Holy Spirit indwelling her, then she and I can totally agree together. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew when he says, if two of you agree, sound together about anything on earth, it'll be done for you by my Father who is in heaven. He's saying, if you agree together, and you can agree together because you both have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. One of the reasons Paul says, don't be unequally yoked. Why? Because an unbeliever and a believer can never agree together. Because the foundation of their marriage is based on a spiritual relationship, the presence of God who indwells them. It's not a physical. It's not even love. The soul area, the emotions, mind, will, and emotions, it's about what God has done in you. Let's face it, I, I'm never going to think and feel and have the same willpower as my wife. Never. We don't think alike. We don't feel alike. I, she doesn't think I feel anything at all most of the time. I mean, we don't have the same willpower. It's just different. But in the spirit area, we can be in total agreement. And then there's the physical. Now, where does the world say unity comes from? It's external. Even if they'll give me the benefit of it, we got to think alike or have the same willpower. It's still external. It's not internal. Because internal is the, where the Spirit of God dwells. And if we're really going to agree together, if we're going to build together, if we're going to sound together, then it has to happen by the presence and power of the Spirit of God who indwells us. Everything else is external. By the way, how do you try to change your life? Most of us try to change our life from the outside in. I have a bad habit. I'm, this is mocking. Let's say I'm a smoker, and I want to break smoking. What do I do? Well, I, you know, I put nicotine patches. I try to go a certain amount of time without smoking, hoping that ultimately I'll stop wanting to smoke. It won't have a draw on me so that ultimately I, uh, the habit will be broken. I, I would contend to you this. God wants to free you from the inside out. He, the Spirit of God indwelling you will give you the power to change the way you think and feel and ultimately to, to change the way you behave. Religion says change from the outside in. Do these things, you'll change. God says, I put my power and presence within you to change you from the inside out. That's what we're going to look at next week. Why is the day of Pentecost such a big deal? Because the Holy Spirit was poured out on all believers so that his empowering presence will fill your life and you can become a kingdom builder and not a tower builder. Everything else that we do apart from him, that's not anointed by him or ordained by him, can ultimately result in tower building. External unity is very powerful. We have seen what man can do even if they're united around a lie. You know, Hitler said, nobody's going to ask the victor if he told the truth. The lie unified people. These people are our enemy. We need to stand against them. People, we need 
the discernment and power and presence of the truth and wisdom of God to lead us into all truth. Otherwise, we too will become tower builders. Tower building misses God's purposes. Tower building is contagious. Tower building is a source of pride. Tower building is external unity. Tower building leads to confusion, idolatry, and false religion. God, when he pours out his presence, his spirit upon us, the spirit leads to unity. The spirit leads to understanding. The spirit leads to order. And we're going to talk about that next week. What I want to encourage you to do is to ask this week, God, show me areas that I've been tower building in my life where I've not been leaning into your grace and dependent on my own strength, my own power, for my own pride, for my own purposes. Pray with me if you would. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for who you are and what you're doing in our lives. Lord, I, I want to stand against being a tower builder in my life. I want to instead, Lord, stand for your purposes, your plans to be accomplished. Spirit of truth, Spirit of God, show me how this has occurred and what I've done to lead me into a place that it seems good, but it's not. I pray that Spirit of God, you'd move through this place, revealing to each and every one of us how we're such controllers and how prideful we really are how many times we are so deceived to think we're doing something good when in fact we're not walking in your purposes at all. Lord, we thank you for your presence here among us. And I thank you that right now you're going you're gonna to direct us in ways that we could not even comprehend. Lord, for those who need freedom right now, I pray for freedom to rule and reign in this place. For those who need healing, I pray that, God, you would touch their physical bodies. For those who need direction, God, give them wisdom. For those who need a fresh touch from you, come, Holy Spirit, and minister life. Stand up with me, if you would, and as we stand, if I could have some ministry teams come to the front.